if you're a psychedelic nerd or you're getting interested in the history the culture you've either come across or you will certainly come across the name rick strassman rick did dmt studies in new mexico he was the first scientist to start studying psychedelics again after the prohibition of psychedelics and thus psychedelic science in america and beyond really but mostly you know in america he was the first one to start studying psychedelics again after that dried up and went away in the 1970s now my guest today andrew gallimore i connected with him a few months ago after he released his book reality switch technologies andrew gallimore actually helped rick strassman develop the protocol for injecting or getting these study participants in the 90s into the dmt state i definitely recommend checking out andrew's book he lays out how different psychedelic classes of compounds impact the brain so it's a real scientific but also very illustrative it's a very interesting book uh, and it'll definitely make you rethink how you see the world and how you see the brain uh, as an operating system andrew's definitely stretching the language i believe and he's a he's a big player in helping us to understand how to ask better questions when it comes to psychedelics how to study them and how to integrate them and make them useful to us so i did before i go to the conversation want to mention andrew's been talking a lot about dmtx which we did not really talk too much about in the conversation, but it's extended DMT experiences. And Imperial College London just put out their first pilot study on this technology that was essentially suggested or hypothesized by Gallimore and Rick Strassman. And Andrew quoted a female volunteer from the original Rick Strassman DMT studies, quote, I went directly into deep space. They knew I was coming back and they were ready for me. They told me there were many things they could share with us when we learned how to make extended, sorry, how to make more extended contact. Andrew follows that up with, well, here we are. Absolutely fascinating times we live in, folks. This is wild stuff. And uh, yeah, wild stuff. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew Gallimore. I'm here with Andrew Gallimore. And he's a computational neurobiologist currently in Tokyo and just wrote this book, Reality Switch Technologies, which is the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today. So just to start, could you kind of sum up uh, 
the recent work, like what is the aim of reality switch technologies? Um, so I've been kind of researching and writing about psychedelics for about 20 years now. Um, but you know, we, we know a lot about how psychedelics work in the brain now, you know, all different types of psychedelics. So the classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin uh, and DMT, uh, but also things like salvia and the tropane alkaloids from mandrake and, and kind of frightening things from detura and things like this. Uh, and also things like ketamine and PCP, which are also psychedelic in their own kind of way. Uh, but what was missing for me in the market uh, was a really good detailed account uh, of how all of these molecules, kind of a unified um, narrative, a unified story of how these molecules are actually working in the brain for somebody who isn't uh, able to kind of trawl through the literature and piece it all together. Um, anyone, I mean, lots of people are interested in psychedelics, and there have been some very popular books, right? Like Michael Pollan's book. Uh, mm -hmm. He talks, you know, about, to some extent anyway, uh, at a, quite a high level how psychedelics work. But I think it's not really that satisfying to me. I, I like to really get into the weeds, really get into the details and think about how these molecules are working. Um, so that's why I wrote the book, basically, is um, so that anyone who's really interested in psychedelics can really dive in, even without being a, a scientist or having any kind of uh, scientific or chemical or biological uh, training can read this book and uh, come out knowing basically everything I know uh, about how psychedelics work in the brain and how they can change the the structure and dynamics of your world because you know that's really what psychedelics are doing they're they're altering your your reality both the perceived external reality so it might be subtle um, with like a low dose of mushrooms, for example, or it could be this complete 100% reality channel switch that you get with DMT. Um, so I wanted to kind of explore how does that happen from the lowest level, from the molecule itself interacting with these receptors in the brain uh, and building up the story to ultimately understanding how we can uh, explore entirely new realms, entirely new um, worlds basically uh, using these molecules so yeah so that's why I wrote the book yeah reality switch technologies <laughs> it, it really seems like you're aiming for kind of to stretch the language um, kind of like a foundational text in regards to like you kind of introduce your own uh, world model or how the brain builds a world <laughs> model that's kind of how you open yeah. the book could you can you kind of explain that? Because to me, that it's it's kind of novel, like that kind of um, the things you were laying out and how the brain creates reality uh, is something yeah. I had never come across before. So if you could kind of explain where you came to your conclusions and kind of explain how the brain generates reality or interfaces with it. Yeah. I mean, I can't take the credit for, you know, everything that's in the book. I mean, this is this this model that I've been developing and working on for the last about 10 years, I think when I really started thinking about this and writing about it, um, 
is the culmination of um, many, many groups work over decades, you know, and, and many very, very important thinkers. Um, but basically the principle here is that, uh, and, and it's absolutely fundamental, as you say, it's kind of axiomatic uh, when it comes to my work, is that the world that you experience under all circumstances is a model. It's, it's constructed by the brain using patterns of uh, neural information. Patterns of neural activity represent the informational structure, the contents and the dynamics of your world. That's fundamental. And that always applies in the waking, even in normal waking life, when you're interacting with the environment, still the world you experience is all in the head. Um, now what's happening is that your brain is constructing this model of reality, what I call the world model. Um, and it is using sensory information to kind of test its model. It's saying, okay, if my model is working, now, um, I should be able to predict the pattern of information coming from the environment uh, next. Uh, I should be able to predict the sensory information I'm going to receive. And it tests. And when it gets it right, when it makes good predictions, it basically quashes, it extinguishes that sensory information, doesn't process it. It says, okay, I know this, this is working. Um, uh, and so it, it's a very kind of parsimonious and very efficient way uh, of your brain doesn't have to constantly be receiving all the information that, that it could possibly receive from the environment. It just um, builds a model and tries to predict that sense of information. If it gets the predictions wrong, yes, if, if, it's, if its model isn't working properly and it doesn't correctly predict the sense of information, you, you get a mismatch between the prediction and the actual sensory information. And that gen generates an error, prediction error. That's what you need to know about. That's what the brain processes, is these prediction errors. That's like a test signal. Uh, and that is processed by the brain, and it's used to update its model of the world uh, until those prediction errors start to uh, come down again, basically. Does that so make that, sense? Yeah, is that kind of like... Uh, homeostasis kind of that concept your brain's always trying to understand and kind of bring everything to some base yeah I, a good way to think about it is imagine if you're going on a uh, a world trip right you're going on a world trip and you say to your parents um this is my itinerary i'm going to be here on this day i'm going to be in this i'm going to be in mumbai on this day i'm going to be in tokyo on this day yes if I don't call you, yes, if I don't call you, um, this is where I'm going to be. Yeah, I'll only call you if my plans change. Yep. So assuming your parents don't receive any information from you whilst you're on this world trip, they know exactly where you are. Yeah, because they've got all these predictions. Yeah, they've got the itinerary. However, the only time you need to call them is if you, you make a, ch a change to your plans. Like, oh, my flight was delayed, so I'm going to be staying an extra night in Dubai, right? Then they update their schedule based upon that. So they can know. They don't, you don't have to call them every day, right, to find yeah. out where you are. They know where they are because they have this model and it's working, yes? Mm -hmm. It's only when the model starts to fail, yeah, when there's change in your itinerary that you need to call them. So it's the same thing with the brain. It has this model. It's using the model to predict 
what's going on in the, the environment. Yes, it's would predicting say, the movement of objects. Would, would you say Go that on. this world model um, is synonymous with perception? Like, is that it what is, yeah. we're talking about? Yes, exactly. But, you know, the world model is what you experience is this world model that's being constructed by your brain and it's it's tested against sensory information the set the information from the world in a way doesn't ever get into the brain uh it's um it's con it's converted to electrochemical information in the retina for example which then passes into the back of the brain uh, and it's either if it's predicted correctly then it's just quashed it's just extinguished um, but if it's not predicted it starts to be processed through these hierarchical levels in the cortex, uh, and then it's used to update the model until those predictions go um, are are um, prediction errors are quashed again, are, are minimised, and and of course you know when you're dreaming you're also experiencing you know for most people most of the time their dreams are continuations of normal waking life. That's because your brain is using the same model. It's using the same model as it does when you're awake. That's why you dream of your normal waking life. Uh, and people have looked at this. People have studied this. Um, most people, when they are dreaming, they spend about the same amount of time talking on the telephone or watching television or walking in the park um, or doing whatever as they do when they are awake. Uh, this is called continuity hypothesis of dreaming because your brain is using the same model. The only difference key difference is that in the dream state the brain doesn't have this sensory testing ability it can't test its model against sensory information because sensory information is blocked where when you are dreaming so the, this is why the dream state can kind of move from place to place a bit more rant, a bit more fluid the scene can change rapidly um, uh, because the model isn't being constrained by sensory information which is another good way of looking at it sensory information constrains perception doesn't drive perception. You're not seeing things in the outside world, really. Um, you're only seeing the prediction errors from mm. the model predictions. So the errors are the only thing that show up? Or are the errors more akin to like novelty? Yeah, exactly. So the errors are what the, the training signal, if you like. So you don't see the errors. That's probably not the way to put it. You see, you experience the model, right? The model is mm. the the information being generated by your brain that's creating this model is the experience. We don't understand why there's a subjectivity to it. That's a, that's a consciousness, you know, that's a philosophy of mind question, which I never get into. Okay. We know, though, we know, though, that the informational structure of your conscious experience is represented in the brain. If I remove a part of your brain that represents color, yeah, there's a certain part of the brain I can remove called V4 in your visual okay. cortices. If I remove that, damage that, you will stop seeing color. Yes? I yeah. can remove part of your brain called V5, which is important for movement. You will develop a condition called akinotopsia. You will see the world as a series of still images. You won't perceive movement. So oh, wow. we don't know why the model is subjective, but we know its structure and dynamics under all circumstances, including in the psychedelic state. Uh, is represented in the brain. Okay. So when you said philosophy of mind, I take it, mm. I was going to ask you, are you a materialist, idealist, somewhere in between? I imagine you're a materialist. No. 
No. I don't certainly don't think I'm a materialist. Um, I would I've sometimes claimed to be an idealist. I don't know if I really am. Um, I don't know if you could ist me. Um, yeah. But 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 no, I don't think being a because I don't think consciousness is easy to explain. I think it's probably absolutely fundamental. And what does that mm. mean? Um, that doesn't mean so because consciousness is fundamental. It doesn't mean it. I mean it has structure. Consciousness contains information. It has structure, obviously. If it didn't, um, your experience would be just the void. Um, it wouldn't be anything. So consciousness right. has structure, yes? Now, yeah. that doesn't mean the brain itself isn't in some way built from this structure and that subjectivity is, is uh, there's a, a kind of a primacy of subjectivity, right? This is an, an idealist position. I don't discount that. But that doesn't mean we can't look at the patterns, you know, the, the, what, the appearance of the brain and, and the, the appearance of its behavior and its structure and its dynamics and the information it generates and, and say things about that. It doesn't mean we're being a, a materialist. It doesn't mean that we're assuming that matter is, is fundamental. I don't assume that at all. Okay. So when you said yeah. that involves more of a philosophy of mind and you said, but I don't get into that at all, what you meant is yeah. in the book or like in your yeah okay yeah i don't get into um right i mean i have my own suspicions and thoughts about it but it's not it's not kind of they don't rest upon you know what mm -hmm. i'm talking about in the book does not rest upon some kind of assumption people always say that that it's reductionist or that it's materialist oh, yeah. but that's just that's just a misunderstanding of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, all I'm saying is that there's information being generated by this thing that we perceive as the brain, and that that is the, the informational structure and dynamics of your world. But I don't, I don't have a firm opinion on consciousness, and that would mean kind of a foray into into <sighs> philosophy of mind and philosophy of consciousness. And I don't want to get into that because it's it's too much of a it's a really deep, profound subject that I'm. I'm still, you know, um, on the fence about. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the language is still evolving around it. Right. And that's why I think yeah, books yeah. like yours kind of help, uh, create new metaphors, I guess. You almost need mm -hmm. metaphors to, to get into that world. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't, uh, I guess I just got a little ahead of myself cause I wanted to ask you that. Mm -hmm. And then you just said, but I don't get into that. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? Mm. Um, yeah. But where we should probably go is um, if you could just kind of explain the switches that you go over in your book and mm. um, how you kind of see how these neurotransmitter systems and how they act with these switches. Um, well, why don't you just introduce the switches and, and go from there? Yes. Okay. So, so, so basically what psychedelics are doing uh, on, on a kind of a, a high level is, is they are altering the structure and dynamics of this world model. So the world model is constructed by the brain, yes, which I describe in the kind of the first few chapters of the book, how that works, how this model testing works. What psychedelics are doing is they are changing the structure and dynamics of that model. It might be subtle or it might be a complete reality channel switch. Um, so, but there are these mechanisms in the brain that we have identified, um, a mechanism that starts with a, a drug receptor interaction, such as LSD with the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, 
then that activates a uh, system of um, intracellular signaling pathways, which alters the behavior of the neurons, the brain cells that communicate with each other. Uh, and that changes the way the neurons behave, changes how they fire, changes their what's called their excitability, their likelihood of firing. Uh, and it also changes the way that, as a result, the way that they communicate with each other, the way that they share information with each other, uh, and the structure and dynamics as a consequence of the world model. So this is how uh, your world model is changed broadly by psychedelics, is by um, uh, interactions between receptors at, the, at the, the lowest level, drug receptor, molecular protein receptor uh, interactions, uh, which then, through higher levels of organization, uh, leads to these changes in the, in the dynamics and structure of the model. And there are basically four, well, I call them switches, because that's how I see them. It's not just a receptor. Uh, it's a whole mechanism, at le several levels of organization. Uh, the, the first switch, as I call it, is, I call it the classic switch, the C-switch, which is this serotonin 5-HT2A receptor interaction, then all of the, the, the mechanism that ensues from that, uh, which causes this change in the, in the structure and dynamics of your model. Um, then there's another completely different mechanism, uh, which I call the, um, the M switch, which is from M1, uh, acetylcholine receptor. And this is, um, this is, this type of receptor is, uh, the, the, the target of the tropane alkaloids like scopolamine, which are these deliriant psychedelics. Uh, then you've got the, the N switch, which comes from NMDA. And this is where ketamine, PCP, these interact with this receptor and cause a different mechanism. Uh, but again, changing the structure and dynamics of your world model. And then finally, we have the K-switch, uh, which is the kappa receptor, uh, the kappa opioid receptor, which is the target of uh, the salvinorin molecules from salvia divinorum. So you have basically four broad, and they can interact with each other, um, but there are basically four distinct mechanisms, multi-level mechanisms that we've identified in the brain that can switch your reality, ultimately. Um, depends how strongly they're activated. It might be a subtle, like nudging the dial out of tune, right, on a, one of those old radio sets. Or it can be a switch to a completely new channel of reality, like you get with, um, you know, 50 milligrams of DMT or 2 milligrams of salvinorin or a high dose of ketamine or a high dose of one of the tropane alkaloids. Um, so that's why I call them switches. Let's, let's just talk about the C-switch since um, I feel like as far as reality altering psychedelic experiences, that's kind of the most uh, well-known or well-understood yeah. by the general public. Um, so if you could just explain the feedback loop that kind of um, like levels the... I'm, I'm trying to use your language from the book, essentially levels the topology and creates. The <laughs> yeah. So, so basically the, 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 the central concept, one of the central concepts of the book is what I call the world space. So, so basically your, your world is a, at any point in time, the world, your entire experienced world, all of the information in that, in that world, the colors, the shapes, the forms, the objects, the movement, the sounds. It's all a pattern of 
uh, cortical column activation. It's a pattern of activity in uh, certain areas of your cortex. Uh, so this is your world at this point in time. And you're, uh, so this is what we call a, a single state of your cortex, a single cortical state. And this pattern changes with each moment. So your, your brain is moving from state to state, and that is experienced by you uh, as the experience of experiencing the world. Yes, the world never stays the same, um, even if the difference is quite subtle. You're always moving to a new state. And if you think about um, these states, as I do in the book, you find that there's a finite but vast number of possible states that your cortex could exist in, right? Um, so there's like a, uh, a state space of all possible worlds that the human brain could build, all possible moments of experience that a human could experience. Um, it's vast, it's so vast, it's for all intents and purposes, intents and purposes <laughs> it's it's infinite but it's not infinite it's a vast state space uh, and i call this the world space uh, and so what we call the consensus reality is a a very small but still quite vast region within the world space and what your brain is doing is sculpting its connectivity between all of its neurons um, to kind of um, lower the energy of these states um, that represent a functional model of the environment. So this is the consensus reality space, I call it, in the book. Um, so the, it's a world space. It's like a, a landscape with hills and valleys. And some states are more accessible than others. Some are favored states. Some are disfavored states. Um, so this comes down. This is basically it's a type of attractor landscape. So complex systems tend to move towards certain states, we find. And you can regulate that. You can control that by controlling the interactions between the, the parts of the complex system. So the brain does this by changing the strength of the interactions, the types of interactions between, um, between its neurons. And so you have this, this, this landscape with these low-energy states and high-energy states. And the, we normally sit within this kind of, uh, like a basin, a basin of attraction in this world space landscape, which is our normal waking world. Now, what the classic psychedelics do, um, at low doses at least, is they, they tend to cause this landscape to flatten out. Um, they, they loosen the, um, they kind of democratize the interactions between, um, between neurons. They allow neurons to share information much more freely. Um, and uh, information to flow uh, both uh, within the cortex and into the cortex much more freely uh, for various reasons we, we can get into, if you like, a bit later. Uh, but this causes th this world space landscape to flatten, which means the difference between high energy states and low energy states becomes smaller, which means the cortex is able to explore states outside of this narrow uh, this this kind of uh, small region called the consensus reality space, and that is experienced as the the um, the experience of um, an altered reality, a more fluid, dynamic reality, where where the model is starting to break down and starting the neural states are starting to move into novel uh, areas. 
Um, so that's the flattening stage. Now, what happens when you uh, take something like DMT is it goes beyond that. Uh, DMT kind of elicits a very specific perturbation uh, of, of the cortex uh, and the complex system. First, it kind of flattens and then it kind of collapses into a completely different geometry. Uh, where a completely different region of the world space becomes this attractor. Uh, and so it, so rather than just flattening and the brain kind of wandering around this more flattened landscape and exploring regions slightly outside the consensus reality space, so slightly outside the normal waking world experience states, uh, it actually is shifted uh, and starts to um, be attracted into these completely novel states that are completely outside of the consensus reality space. They're in a completely disjoint region of uh, the world space landscape. And that's experienced as um, the this bizarre model, world model, that is the DMT world. It's a yeah. complicated idea, I know. You know, <laughs> you really have to read the book to get to get the details of what's going on there. But that's yeah. the idea. You're, you're laying like a scientific argument for how the body can be in what we call consensus reality, but your perception can be in like another world and what people kind of called uh, like another dimension or people like Terrence or like, you know. Yes. Yeah, I'm not denying that, that that you really are in another world. I mean, you are in another world in that your your model is, is different, right? So So even if, so whether the DMT world is, real quote unquote real uh, in other words whether it's some kind of representation of an objective reality your brain must still build it mm-hmm. you can't experience a world that your brain can't build a model of so 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 when you go to the dmt space these strange bizarre hypertechnological realms filled with entities um what's your brain is still building a model of that reality the question is is that model being tested against is it being informed by is it being modulated by information from some other place um, just like in the normal waking world your world model is being modulated by sensory information from this environment which we we mostly agree is real the question is, is when we go to the dmt world is it purely a fabrication of the brain like a bizarre dream or yeah. is it being modulated by information from somewhere else? And if so, where is this somewhere else? Are there really intelligent, conscious beings that we are interacting with? That's the open question. Yeah, that's interesting. And like, well, okay, so you've kind of laid out the, the foundation now of your ideas, and mm. people might have to listen to this, like, or, re- <laughs> or read uh, a couple times, yeah. or read the book, yeah. and then listen. Yeah. Or listen, read the book, whatever, to inform this yeah. a little. But, okay, now that you've kind of laid out your foundation, do you have a feeling mm-hmm. one way or the other whether what you call consensus reality um, is uh, anyhow different in terms, like, spatially or in terms of reality? Like, is it just as rooted, I guess, as the DMT space? Like, um, I don't... Right? You know, I, d- I don't know. What I know is that the it's not easy to explain um, neuroscientifically from a, from a from a kind of orthodox neurological standpoint, which is why I got into this in the first place. It's not easy to say. Um, or it is easy to say, oh, it's just a hallucination, right? That's kind of it's it's facile, but when you really get down to it um, to try and explain it, it's very difficult to explain why. 
when we, you know, using what we understand about the brain and how it builds our our world and how it evolved to construct our model of reality, right? The model of reality that we experience, the normal waking world, consensus reality, this is a, a, a model of the environment that your brain has evolved and learned to build over aeons, right? We're talking mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, it, your brain just wasn't dropped to earth. <laughs> Some people would say maybe it is. But mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, the brain is a product of evolution. Your brain evolved to construct this model of reality. Uh, and uh, it's the only model that it knows how to build. Or it's the only model it should know how to build. So it's not easy to explain why, when you take this simple plant alkaloid, the brain suddenly becomes capable of constructing these uh, bizarre, hyper-technological alien realms that have no relationship whatsoever to the normal waking world. That's Mm -hmm. kind of confounding. It's like the brain suddenly switches to speaking uh, a highly complex language that it's never learned. Um, it'd be like switching from speaking English to speaking uh, um, Mandarin, having never been exposed to the language, um, or some ancient dead language, you know, speaking Sanskrit or something, um, having never been exposed to it. That would be confounding. You know, everyone would accept that that would be difficult to explain if a human, if a child suddenly started speaking Sanskrit. Um, you go, where did he learn that? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, when the brain starts constructing these new models of reality that it, that, that it hasn't evolved, presumably, to construct, we kind of say, oh, it's just hallucination. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's, it's easy uh, to say that. But actually, it is as confounding to me as somebody... Uh, a five-year-old child switching from English to Sanskrit or Siberian Yupik uh, or whatever, you know, or some African click language, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's almost like we're switching from biology to electricity. It's, all, it's like deeper than language, but language is like right. yeah. so crucial to our reality as well. Yeah. Um. So... I find the M switch to be super interesting, uh, like the deliriance. Um, I just, are you familiar with Jeremy Narby? Of course, I met him, yes. Yeah, I was at a conference with him a few years ago. Yeah, so he just wrote a book. um, It's like tobacco, ayahuasca, and, um, oh, I forget. Tobacco, ayahuasca, and and something else. And... uh, I didn't know that tobacco was a psychedelic in high doses. Is that is that scientific understanding, or is that? Um, I mean, you know, so obviously, as we're talking about nicotine here, I mean, I w- whether you would call it a psychedelic, I think that would be disputed. I mean, it's still disputed whether the tropanes can be considered psychedelic. I consider them psychedelic. Um, but it depends on your definition of psychedelic. Some people w- would restrict it to 5-HT2A partial agonists, you know, the classics. Mm. They would deny that the tropanes like scopolamine or detura are, are psychedelic. They would deny that, P- that ketamine is, is any kind of psychedelic. But I don't do that. I, I, yeah. I look at the effects. Um, so nicotine, certainly people have been used. I mean, nicotine is you know, a sacred plant. You know, it's not nicotine, mm-hmm. sorry. Tobacco is a sacred plant that's been used and in high doses certainly can... Um, elicit effects that would you would find to be, um, yeah, otherworldly perhaps, or certainly conscious altering 
Um, but whether I would define it as psychedelic, I don't know. Yeah. So Narby lays out an experience where uh, he was given like a paste, a tobacco paste, and he like transforms his, his body transforms in his perception to like having the face of a jaguar. And uh, mm. um, it's very similar to like you, your description of the delirians in the book. Mm. And uh, he lays out that it is it acts on the uh, acetylcholinergic um, system rather mm. than the uh, the serotonin system. So, yeah. but it seems like you're way more conscious and you would remember it, whereas like the delirians are often disorienting and like you kind of forget about them a lot, right? Like a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the yeah the M switch. So this is like the, yeah the M one acetylcholine receptors. So the the deliriums work from a, using a completely different mechanism, uh, but it's still quite uh, it's still quite complex and not fully understood because acetylcholine. So so the the delirium like tropane alcohol like scopolamine they bind to this they they're what are called M one antagonists. They they antagonize. They bind to this acetylcholine receptor, but they don't activate it. So they block the effects of acetylcholine on this particular receptor type. So that's basically what they do. But why does this cause this strange effect? Uh, that is um, manifold. But one of the main mechanisms is to um, is to shut down these error signals. To remember these error signals, these prediction errors are how the brain tests its model. How it, it's really the connection between the model and the environment. It's, it's basically testing its model from moment to moment and updating. Um, and these prediction errors are carried uh, up to up through the we call the cortical hierarchy to the higher and higher levels of the cortex and used to ch to update the model in real time they keep the model accountable if you like to the environment um now these prediction errors you can control the volume of them you can kind of turn them up or turn them down depending on how reliable you think the sensory information is so sensory information is always very noisy uh, and not always very reliable so you don't want to change your model unless you're sure that you're getting good quality prediction errors. If you're sure that when your model predictions are failing, that that's because there's a problem with the model and not a problem with the information coming from the environment. So if you're driving down a, uh, a road at midnight and it's really foggy, yeah, you're getting really poor quality sensory information. Um, so if you were to adapt your driving to every, every time some fog brushed across your screen or something and you interpreted it as, I don't know, a wall or something, you, you would never get anywhere. Um, so you have to understand that uh, your brain has to know that uh, under certain circumstances, the sensory information isn't going to be particularly reliable. So it, it switches down, it turns down the volume on its prediction errors and uses its model more. So it's, it's, it's relying, hopefully, on a good working model. So it's a bit dangerous doing that because you don't then, you can become detached from the environment if you turn the prediction errors down too much. Yeah, if you turn them up what, too what's, much. What's the defining, like, what makes that happen? Is it typically the individual's brain that's kind of the defining factor of whether it's actually the environment or the information? Or whether it's the prediction yes, errors I, or the environment? Yeah, so... So the, so the prediction errors are, are 
are generated by information from the environment. Yeah, the prediction errors are how the brain knows if its model is working. Um, and it, the brain has to kind of strike a balance between, you know, if there's basically, if, the, if there's a prediction error, it means there's a discrepancy between the model and the sensory information. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what a prediction <clears throat> error is. Discrepancy between the, what the model says should happen and what the, the sensory information that it's receiving actually is. That's your prediction error. That's the gap. Now, there's two ways this prediction error can occur, right? Either the model can be wrong, or, which is what we assume normally, or maybe the sensory information is wrong. Both of these will cause a prediction error. Now, if the sensory information is wrong, you do not want to be updating your model, because then your model's going to, in a way, become, you're going to move out. You're not going to become, it's not going to become a better model. It's going to become a worse model if you're updating. So you have to know. Your brain has to judge. Wait a second here. Um, how how much do I really believe in my model? So in the in the book, I, I give the example of you're talking to a friend on the telephone, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, it's a crackly long distance line, and he says to you, "Oh, I'm meeting my this afternoon." You don't hear him very well clearly, but it sounds the word sounds a bit like dolphin, yeah. So you don't go, "Oh, he's meeting his dolphin this afternoon." That would be kind of stupid. You think, oh, he must have said girlfriend, right? Because it's, it's a bit similar. And you know that he's, he mentioned yesterday he was going to meet his girlfriend. So you have a model of what that word probably is. It's, there's a discrepancy, though, because the sensory information is saying dolphin. You know your friend doesn't hang out with dolphins. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of absurd. So you, here you trust your model more. So you, you, you basically ignore the sensory information and you complete it. You trust your model, which says girlfriend. I'm meeting my girlfriend this afternoon. That makes sense. So your brain is doing this all the time. It's got this model and it's always testing against sensory information, but it needs to decide, wait a minute, that sensory information doesn't seem right. It's probably not wrong. I'm not going to update the model. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, and it does that by controlling the volume of the prediction errors. If it thinks this sensory information is crap, it's too noisy. Uh, there's too much fluctuation. Um, I'm just going to switch down these prediction errors and rely on my model uh, mm. for a while and hope that it doesn't go wrong. Yeah. Then so, when the prediction errors start getting good again, you turn them up and, and check. And then you got you keep sampling then from the environment. Mm -hmm. so that makes sense. The, yeah. So the M switch. Uh, essentially allows the or causes those prediction errors to pile up and then you're making a inaccurate model of the world or your so, so what the m switch yeah so 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 basically so this volume control is is acetylcholine so acetylcholine binds to these m1 acetylcholine receptors uh, and activates these neurons that are carrying the prediction errors. Um, so it turns up the volume. So if you want to turn up the volume on the prediction errors, if you, you think the, the, the sensory information is high quality, reliable, you, you, you uh, use acetylcholine to increase the volume of the prediction errors. If you think that sensory information is unreliable, you don't trust it, you turn them down. Yeah, you reduce acetylcholine. Now what the tropanes do is they block that M1 receptor which means that effectively it's as if you shut down, you're suddenly shut down all of your acetylcholine going into this receptor. So it's like you're mimicking a situation in which 
the brain has judged the information to be completely, sensory information to be completely unreliable. It doesn't want to hear the prediction errors. So in other words, it's trusting its model entirely. It has no information. It loses the ability to, re- to test its model against the environment. Mm-hmm. And so the model becomes completely divorced from the environment, right? Uh, it receives very little prediction error testing. It loses its accountability. So it can completely drift away from the model, and it's never, it's never corrected. Yeah, so you can have a, imagine you, you can have a, a brief thought. Uh, did I just light a cigarette? Now, normally you would look and you would see no. Obviously, I didn't. You wouldn't feel it. You wouldn't see the smoke. You would realize within half a second that you hadn't just lit a cigarette. Mm-hmm. When that happens in the propane state, yeah, mm-hmm. briefly, there's your your brain incorporates a cigarette into your world model. Mm-hmm. It's never corrected. You can go go on smoking, and, and it's it's very common. Uh, smokers will have this called it's called phantom smoking. It's so common in the in the tropane state. They will continue smoking this cigarette for a long time. Yeah. Then yeah. when they don't see it anymore, they will they will look around, scramble on the floor to try and find it because they think it's going it's going to burn the house down. Um, yeah. So that's because that model testing isn't working. They have an idea. The brain kind of drifts a little bit. And it's never kind of pulled back, never pulled back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it goes, it kind of moves further and further from the trajectory. And this can then lead you into entirely fantastical situations where you're, um, you're walking, you know, you're entertaining guests in your room for hours and, and having long conversations with people about strangest subjects. Um, and then suddenly you leave the room and you go back and you realize you have a moment of lucidity and you realize that none of that happened. Um, something startles you or something gets through. There's a moment of lucidity, a moment of focused attention. Uh, and you realize, the brain realizes the model has just been wrong. You've just been kind of, in a sense, like a waking dream. You've been dreaming in a waking state. Mm-hmm. All of these hallucinations have been perfectly blended with the environment because they've just been incorporated into your model. Uh, and they're never being corrected. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. So the tropanes are kind of like the Hollywood depiction of like a bad trip where you're just seeing real things that just aren't happening and then they kind of go away. And then Yes. So we call the tropane state uh, induces what is generally referred to as uh, true hallucinations. So the Terence McKenna book, of course. So yeah. they're true hallucinations. They're not visions. Normally, visions announce themselves as being distinct from the normal waking world. If you have a DMT vision, it's very clear that this is, that this is different. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you maintain the insight, if you like. The tropanes don't announce themselves as being visions yeah. uh, because there's no, there's no conflict. The brain doesn't see that there's... Oh, there's a, normally, when you have a vision in a, in a psychedelic state, classic psychedelic state... You, a prediction errors actually increase. The brain notices that there's these. This is the model isn't working properly. We're getting these patterns and structures that aren't being that aren't predicting sensory information, and you get an increase in prediction errors. In fact, mm-hmm. in the tropane state, the the model kind of just drifts and it's never corrected. The brain yes. doesn't know, no idea. So, mm. so in that tropane state, um, so if it's if it's agonizing acetylcholine, that would make sense. Why you wouldn't be. Uh, I guess downloading or saving those memories as well, right? 
because that I see the calling out. Yeah, so acetyl choline is also important for memory formation. Um, yeah. So when you're blocking, I mean, it, it's 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 a very complicated, and there's also an effect on cortical. Uh, there are also these M1 receptors on um, inhibitory interneurons uh, in the brain. Um, so these help to control cortical activity, and yeah. and the M and the M1 receptors there are blocked as well, which which kind of releases cortical neurons from inhibition. So you get what's called disinhibition. Uh, so the neuro, neural activity becomes slightly more excited, which means that it's actually it, it's 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 further pushing the model away. It's further okay. kind of breaking down the model a little bit, and it's never corrected. So you get the model is being pushed and to drift away from its normal state into new mm-hmm. territory, and, and it's never just... receiving these 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 correcting signals, prediction errors. And so you can imagine why it's called a waking dream or a delirious state. Yeah, it's like a yeah, a, a hell that can unfold. Right, it's just can unfold on its own. Um, right. So right. Do you yeah. know? Do you know if nicotine is an agonist? Maybe maybe nicotine's not. It an is. Agonist. Yeah. It is absolutely. Oh, okay. It's an agonist. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nicotine is, uh, in fact, the one major class. The major class of acetylcholine receptor is the nicotinic receptors. So you have the nicotinic receptors and you have the muscarinic receptors. So the M M1 is muscarinic one that binds to muscarin. Mm-hmm. Nicotinic receptors. Are activated by nicotine. That's how you originally tested uh, for these receptors. Was they're activated by uh, nicotine? Of course, in the body, normally they're activated by acetylcholine, but maybe, they're specifically activated by nicotine as well. Maybe this is something that's already well understood, but to me, that looks like the the muscarin and the nicotinic. The difference between those uh, different acetylcholine receptors. The difference between like a hallucination on like a tobacco paste versus a hallucination mm-hmm. on Datura. Maybe maybe it's like the difference between the nicotinic and the um, muscarin has to do with, maybe there's a connection between memory there. I don't know. Maybe that's understood. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think um, kind of altered states of consciousness with nicotine, I don't think it's 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 been fully explored, but you, one can imagine I mean, at least kind of neurologically uh, in detail. Um, but, you know, I don't think anyone's put anyone in a fMRI machine with high-dose nicotine. Yeah, it's you know? actually really um, dangerous. Certainly, you know, I mean, it would be pretty wild, I think, uh, because it can also make people vomit and panic. Yeah. So it can be quite a difficult experience. Um, so, normally, nicotine studies are done with quite low doses, I think. Yeah, you, you should definitely read Narby's book. It's like 60-some pages long, and it's kind of a tobacco, like, handbook. And um, it's interesting because nicotine can – it's, like, super deadly. But, you like, what these sh- – I think they're shaming. What they do is they, um, they build a tolerance, and that's why they're able to do these high doses. So, yeah, it would be really – it'd be dangerous to study, but interesting. I uh, just wanted to yeah, see yeah, yeah. if you – if that was on your radar, what you thought about it. Okay. So, you know, Terrence McKenna's, um, notion kind of changing gears here. Terrence McKenna had the notion of like the, the skyscraper, uh, filled with experiences, like doing a psychedelic, you're kind of tapping into the previous experiences of those who have done it before you, that idea. Um, I don't know much about it. Um, I, I mean, certainly do you mean like, 
across people? Yeah, like, so what Terrence would say is like uh, the reason that mushrooms have kind of this animated and he was just speculating, you know, he was just rapping. Yeah. But perhaps mushrooms have um, similar symbolism throughout cultures uh, via experience because we're actually tapping into um, it's actually the amount of people in the generations and the years before us and their experiences like mm. we're building on that when we when we take that um when we take that specific compound so psilocybin in that case i i think that would be a um pretty far out fringe position i mean mm -hmm. um it, it would be quite difficult to explain unless you are sold on rupert sheldrake's morphic resonance and mm -hmm. um that kind of thing um which i'm not i mean i like rupert met him many times but uh yeah i'm not i don't just subscribe to his um philosophy and i'm, I'm sure he wouldn't expect me to mm -hmm. um but you know if you believe in that then yes you can believe that every experience um every time you do something it leaves a, a memory and maybe i think because of course terence and rupert were good kind friends, of good yeah. friends and, and and they and he certainly drew on rupert's ideas um what i would suggest certainly is that there are um deep you know we're not blank slates um we're not born blank slates um and there are certain structures certain propensities to experience that all humans have um young formalized these as the archetypes uh, in the collective unconscious the collective unconscious is not some weird conscious field like that the new ages will have you believe that you can kind of access uh, you know you're accessing this universal field and communicating through it no 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 i don't believe that um but there are certain inherited structures yes so um the uh, these lead to kind of typical experiences so um the let's take an example Bum, bum, bum. Um, a, a rat, for example, let's go to a lower creature, uh, a rat that is just born, um, that has never had any interaction with a cat, right? A very young rat will still be scared of a cat, specifically. Um, they are born scared of cats, right? Because they have certain structures that, that generate, they, that experience creates fear in them. Uh, because they've laid down these neural structures. They're so important. Um, also, uh, in humans, fear of snakes, fear of spiders, right? There are very good reasons why a spider frightens people or a snake frightens people or why people have images, visions of snakes, because uh, it was a very good idea in times past uh, to, for snakes to generate fear. So the snake image or the propensity yeah. To generate the snake image, which is associated with certain emotional states, is very, very strong. Uh, and that's, you can apply that also to the mother, right? The mother archetype, we call that. What is that? It's not an image of a mother, but it's, it's very deep level inherited structures that, um, that are associated with the mother. Um, the, the, the warmth, the comfort, the closeness, uh, the sense of love and, and support, and all, everything we associate with motherhood. Um, this can be, if you like, reconstructed, generate this, this image um, 
of, of the mother. And you can do that with, you know, the, the trickster or the shadow and all of these other things. Um, so there are certainly deep structures in the brain, basically, um, that are inherited uh, from time immemorial. Um, and so when you take DMT, for example, or a psychedelic, let's say a high dose of mu magic mushrooms, um, you are, as well as suppressing the um, input from the environment, sorry, as well as, as, well as um, releasing the brain, releasing input into, uh, from the environment. So removing that filter, stopping the brain from predicting and suppressing um, information from the environment. You're also preventing the brain from suppressing information from kind of bubbling up from these lower, deeper uh, cortical and subcortical structures. This is why memories start to bubble up memories of, 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 of your childhood or particularly uh, emotionally charged events that you might have repressed. This is why people think that psychedelics are useful in psychotherapy because you have these deeply embedded repressed that your brain is actively trying to extinguish and repress these patterns of activity which represent these very negative traumatic uh, experiences the brain is doing that very successful and that is the neural mechanism for repression if you like when you take a psychedelic um, the brain these high level this high level model that is performing this suppression it breaks down so you get the flow of information upwards as well as the flow of information sensory information into the brain via increased prediction errors you get the flow of these structures upwards and the more um, kind of emotionally charged they are um, the kind of the stronger, the more energy, you would say, if you like, um, that they have, and they will tend to move upwards. But also these these inherited, um, deeper, very very deep, uh, fundamental uh, neural patterns that have been inherited over time. These archetypal structures will also start to, um, uh, if you like, um, condense and, and and work their way into consciousness and start incorporating themselves into your world model and so this is why you start to see certain people tend to see snakes people tend to see uh, insects or people tend to see elves maybe you know maybe we can mm -hmm. interpret elves in this similar way yeah that's interesting so it's like i guess that's kind of well understood in like maybe the self-help world or something that like emotion drives reality right it drives the behavior of entities that we interact with sure uh, of course you know and that yeah. makes it makes perfect sense and the the dmt state as well is is generally very emotionally charged and uh, the, the beings that you encounter will generally have a very strong emotional component you will see they have a character it's kind of expressed in their character they might seem as a warm loving guide or they might seem mischievous uh, and slightly sinister, uh, like they could turn on you. You know, people describe the elves sometimes as being very mischievous and playful, but watch out, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and people describe these kind of characters uh, since, uh, you know, universally across different cultures, you, will, you know, the, the clown archetype or a variation on the trickster archetype, that's universal. Um, so it's not surprising that these deep structures are... Uh, are, are bubbling upwards and, and are condensing into these particular characters which basically take over uh, yeah. your world-building machinery. That's what's happening. Uh, that's why I say you don't break through into the DMT world. The DMT world breaks through into you. 
um, it is um, taking over. It's taking control of your world-building machinery and building its world using your brain. Uh, so it's coming up from somewhere. Is it coming up from deep archetypal structures? Uh, or is it coming really from some other alternate reality? We don't know the answer. It could be a mixture of the two. So, it, like, so do you believe that you take your body with you or that we can take our bodies with us to that space? Because if so, it's kind of like Terrence had this notion. I think you wrote about it in, um, in uh, the Archaic Revival, this notion of like turning the ego inside out. Because that's what that sounds like to me. It's like you get your sh ego shut down or your uh, you know, default node system set, shut down. And then DMT takes over you, like you said, like, um, yeah, that's basically what's happening. I mean, your body, um, your experience, I mean, the body you're, you're experiencing, of course, is itself part of your model. Um, so it's, so, so normally you don't need to take that with you or it's not normally taken with you, but even if it was, it would still be a, a variation on your, your body model. Of course, your body would still remain as it is. Most people don't normally describe having a body in these deep experiences the sense of body uh, of having a body is kind of lost and it becomes unnecessary um it mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be incorporated into this new model um, so it seems to be a, a point of awareness rather than uh, an embodied uh, world interesting so the body is like the differentiation almost it's like the separate the separation uh, it could be, yeah. I don't, I don't know whether that's particularly important. Um, I mean, in a dream, for example, you normally have a body. Um, you know, people would call it the dream body, but it, it, it's a model. It's a variation of, of the model that you have in normal waking life, um, the same model of your body. Um, your, your body isn't going anywhere. Uh, when you're you know, traveling around in a dream, of course, you, you, this physical body assuming we have a physical body is staying where so, it is when you say well, it's not important what do you mean by not important well i don't know whether it's we can say definitively that that's the distinction between the normal waking world and the dmt world is that you don't have a body in the dmt world because i'm not convinced that you never have a body or what that body would be like i'm just saying that most people don't describe having a body but whether it's really a point of crucial significance uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, in your description of like how the neurons um, build connections uh, in, in the cortical hierarchy uh, to build the world, to build the world model um, and how that mm -hmm. gets disrupted essentially by these different switches. Um, so to me, and I think you put an image in of this, like it kind of like flattens it and it allows your attention yeah. essentially to go down new pathways or see things easier in a different way than have you, than if you were sober, essentially. So yeah, to so. me, um, back to your prediction model thing, uh, you're saying you, you better be getting good information from the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, cause otherwise it's going to be, uh, you're going to be trusting a bad environment. Right. And then you can run right. into some, yeah. you know, you're obstacle. trusting bad information about the environment. Yeah. So You're now, trusting bad information. Yeah. So if we turn that to like the body politic or something, like we're very social creatures. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of a, 
you're, you're giving a scientific definition of how our brains construct reality. And it also kind of reinforces the idea that like, that being dishonest with yourself and being dishonest with others is like a very hazardous thing, right? Um, Cause, because if everyone's dishonest yes. with themselves, you can mm -hmm. kind of construct this like in incorrect sense of reality. Yeah. 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 I think, yes. I mean, there, you, there are, you can formulate this for m many different types of models. They are, whenever you're trying to build an adaptive model, and that's really what it is, it's not the most correct model, if you like. It's the most adaptive model. What model works the best? What model allows me to navigate the environment, to not get eaten by a predator, um, to not get hit by a car, um, to survive, to find a mate, to reproduce, right? What model allows me to do that? That's the model that counts. That's the model that gets um, propagated and and uh, through evolution through reproduction right so that's and it's an adaptive model um and so the the, the model you experience is always the ideally the most adaptive model and the psychedelic mm -hmm. model is not necessarily an untrue model it's not a distortion of a true reality that we somehow have access to it's it's just an alternative model that might be suboptimal from an adaptive perspective but might yeah. actually contain more information about the environment so uh, it's just that the brain normally filters out a lot of that information by predicting it and getting rid of it yeah so so tick so tiktok has these filters that like mm. show your eyes way out here for a certain number of seconds and there's like a sound that goes along with it. It's like, put this filter on your face for 10 seconds. Mm. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it snaps back and it's like, now <laughs> your eyes seem like now you'll seem, you will see your own eyes as if they're closer together, like on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Could, could exposure to that, like does media work the same way as these switches? Like is, is media. Yeah, I get your point. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Because, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think certainly the model that you are constructing is based upon, it's, it's, as I say, it's tested against sensory information. So it's trained by, it's updated by sensory information. So as you're receiving a sensory information or just, let's say, information generally, let's, let's broaden this and say information for, about the world, in some information about, uh, for you're getting from the news, yeah? You're building yeah. these higher level models, these broad models about the state of the world, right? Exactly. The state of the environment, the state of politics and government uh, and culture and the state of yourself in relation to that. These are all informed. So if you're getting bad information or deliberately misleading information, then yeah. it's, you're going to be constructing an entirely different model of, of yourself and of the world and, uh, and of reality. Uh, so it's certainly something that can be uh, manipulated and you can, you can deal with that, of course. You can say, I'm going to cut myself off from this information. Um, and then, you, you, then you, you end up in a situation where you're completely detached. You, you never learn anything about the world because you assume that it's all bad information. Then you, It's almost like a paranoid state then. Then That's your not... own model of reality becomes completely divorced and you become one of these kind of lunatics. But what, what, you're, what you're saying is you have to be connected to the electronic media, say the internet, say TV, otherwise you're paranoid? 
No, 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 not at all. But I mean, if you, you there's, but I'm not saying it probably is good to disconnect in some ways from the electronic media. Uh, but if you cut, if you assume that all information is is bad information, that's like cutting yeah. off. You know, it's like taking a delirium in a, in a broader sense. Uh, if you say that all information, everybody is lying. If you say that, then yeah. you're you're denying the ability to to update your model, and so but then you're... you just generate your own model, which becomes divorced, and then you become very okay. paranoid, and then you're you become effectively a lunatic because you exist in your yeah. literally your own world. So the medium you're talking about there is your own self-narratization, self-talk. The media I'm talking about mm. specifically mm. is, I guess, TV and, and internet, like as a medium. Yeah, so that's the sensory information. Yeah, that's the sensory information that informs yeah. the model uh, so, that you're constructing. Oh, man. Yeah, so it seems like if you disconnect from electronic media, you're kind of mm. – um, geographically like that's your environment now like you're tied to your geography like you're in japan yeah so the attractor states of your of the consensus world which is earth right it's what it the geography um Mm -hmm. you're kind of now forced to go to that environment to build your world model but now if you have access to anywhere now Mm -hmm. the medium itself so whether it's television or whether it's internet or whatever that becomes the attractor state and the more yeah, people that, that yeah. yeah that's so it's me, like that's that's globalization right so so yeah. in a, if this is why everyone like if you went 100 years ago people who lived in japan would be building a completely different world that not mm-hmm. just the, the experience of you know what they see in their environment but yeah. their entire world model their entire reality would be different to somebody who lived in north america 100 years ago yeah. um so this you know this is where um, <laughs> it's very, very distinct, um, completely different models of reality, different worldviews, different, literally different ways of seeing the world. Uh, and it's very difficult to, to, to reconcile those. Now, of course, as you say, we live in a globalized world, getting information all the time. And it's like, what point is there this transition between uh, one's prosaic, um, localized uh, world model? When does that switch to the the hive mind, the global hive mind that is informed by and takes um, uh, trusts, if you like, uh, information as being more reliable that's coming from electronic media rather than trusting the information that's coming from local news media or from what you're seeing as you move around the world with your own eyes, so to speak. You see, you can, yeah. you can switch down, you can turn up and down these prediction errors. If you really believe that um, the social media and electro, you know, globalized electronic media is bad uh, or is, is unreliable, then you, you switch down the prediction errors for those. You turn them down. You say, okay, I'm gonna, I don't trust these. Turn the volume down, quite literally. Yeah. Whereas you trust more what you're seeing with your own eyes in your own community. On the other hand, when you think, okay, most people, I think, are drifting now to where they, they trust what they see. It's it's not true unless it's in the newspaper, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> doesn't, it, doesn't it switch on an individual level? Like, it's probably already switched for some people, unless it's... Yeah, it switches on an individual level, but then when everybody is experiencing that, then the, the model itself, you get, more, you get a new consensus model, yeah? So we live in a consensus reality. We agree mm-hmm. on certain things fundamental things yeah we agree that 
um, you know, this is a, a cup, right? We're not going to argue about that. Uh, yeah. We agree with certain things. We, we disagree on certain things. There are certain wouldn't, fundamental things. Wouldn't the switch occur like when every human switches? Because couldn't we go and ask an indigenous person and essentially they would say like, yeah, you've already switched. Like I haven't. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone, I mean, it's not like it has to be everyone or you get pockets, right? So this is why you have these uh, quite, um, particularly in the United States, as you know, um, certain groups of people are clearly constructing their reality is very different yeah. to another group. One, if you're, a, if you're some kind of far leftist, right? Uh, one of these woke could be used that word, um, millennials or zoomers or whatever they call them. They are constructing a different world. They literally exist in an entirely different world. Uh, that's not a criticism necessarily. It's just a fact from somebody who is a, you know, conservative Republican. Yes. Traditionalist. Um, they live in a different world. Those worlds they, they can't come together. You can't just try and talk your way out of it and agree to disagree or whatever. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in one person's world, what um, another person is saying in a different world is just completely wrong. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's not just they disagree with it. It's completely wrong. That's not reality. That's not the correct model. Whereas the other person can't see it. So it's you get these... Um, it's it's like these quite complex interactions between these world models, these separation and phase separation, I think, uh, into these groups, and it can become quite divisive. And you're seeing that certainly now um, in um, in the United States, where it's not just individuals, small individuals that have a completely different world. One of these uh, isolationist types, right? You know, these um, what do you call them? Uh, libertarian isolate who live in the mountains on their own they have their own little world and it's fine yes but when you have very large groups that start to coalesce with the same world model based upon the information that they're consuming uh, then the world model uh, you get these like oil slicks uh in in water right they never mix they can never you can never bring them together uh and it's very difficult i think to you have to kind of globally, universally change everyone's model and, and still, until they coalesce again into something where they're not, everyone's model isn't the same at least, but at yeah. least they can, they can coexist with each other without separating like oil and water. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, Terence has this notion of, uh, of TV as a psychedelic, essentially, that mm. was dropped on Japan he like uses Japan as an, as an example. He's like, yeah. we, we were so worried about the um, atomic bomb that got dropped on Japan that we weren't worried about the like internal bomb. And that's kind of like McLuhan, mm. McLuhanist language. But mm-hmm. um, that TV is kind of this, whatever, mass psychosis or like, it's like a, like yeah. a psychedelic yeah. in a way. Do you, do you see different uh, electronic mediums or just electronic mediums in general as being their own switch? Or do you feel like they're more fundamental or? Um, I don't see them as their own switch. I see them as different variants of sensory information that can alter the model on a, on a, a, a slower and uh, more um, long-term basis. 
um, which makes them more dangerous, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. what these reality channel switches that I talk about, you know, the, 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 the C switch or whatever, is it's very, it's a very quick and very efficient, very clean. You know, you know what's happening. And then you're brought back. It's very, uh, and it's, and it's voluntary. Whereas something like television, what that is doing is introducing information into your, and, and Instagram and Twitter and all of these things. They are introducing sensor information and causing your model to update slowly and, and permanently, basically, um, almost. Uh, It's a very slow, gradual process where you're actually causing, you know, over time, you know, your model can update in real time very quickly. But eventually, when the brain starts seeing these patterns over and over again, it starts to actually remold itself. It starts to remold itself, remold its connectivity uh, to basically to learn this model so it can keep building it. And so over time, um, your brain actually is reconfigured. You, 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 you start building a different world when you're exposed to these things, um, which is why I guess it, it's quite dangerous. TV totally. and things like that. I mean, yeah. Know. So you worked with uh, Dr. Rick Strassman, correct? You kind of, yeah. you, you helped him develop his protocol. Is that right? What's the story? Well, there? the protocol was my, it was my protocol, really. I mean, that's, it was my idea originally um, to use this extended um this infusion model, target-controlled intravenous infusion to stabilize the level of DMT in the brain over time. But, uh, yeah, I worked, I used Rick Strassman's blood sample data from the early 90s to, to inform this mathematical model, um, which we then published and which Imperial College have now uh, improved upon greatly and actually implemented in humans, and they will be publishing They'd be submitting a paper by the end of the year and publishing their first trials with um, 30 minutes of this infusion of DMT, yeah, DMTX, it's called. So this is yeah. a, is that a new type, is that a new chemical, just like a newly derived? No, 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 it's DMT, um, but it's, 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 it's a, a new mechanism of delivery. So you, uh, you basically, you have a controlled infusion of DMT in, into, the, into, the, into the blood um, uh, which maintains a stable DMT concentration in the brain, so you can stay within the DMT state for you know, up to hours at a time. And where did you come up with that idea, like the protocol you gave Rick? Um, it was just looking at the kind of the pharmacological properties of DMT. They're very similar to these um, uh, anesthetic drugs that are used in in surgery you know they're very short acting they don't have subjective tolerance uh, they're very quickly cleared from the brain so it, it occurred to me you can use the same technology that they use in anesthesiology uh, with dmt uh, and our paper was really just to show that that is indeed uh, the case and it's now been demonstrated in humans that you can actually you can actually keep someone in the dmt state for long periods of time so how I've got many five people... minutes and i have to go okay how many people have you put in that way I haven't put anybody in. I mean, oh. I, I wrote the my I wrote the paper, uh, and that kind of inspired the work, uh, the development, and you know, Imperial College are doing that in London. I'm certainly not doing human studies here in Japan. So, are you working with Imperial? Yeah. Um, only on an informal basis. So there was some kind of consulting and discussion at the early stages, but they've got it down now. I mean, they're the guys. They're the experts okay. in, in 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 you know in delivering DMT and in studying the the neural activity under the influence of dmt and things like that so we'll get some data coming out next year i think 
what what's the longest someone's been under or been in the dmt only 30 yeah. minutes so far only 30 minutes but it's just a pilot study really i think so that could be extended indefinitely so the theory is that that indefinitely so well okay yeah. <laughs> do you mean that well i mean i don't mean like forever but i mean there's no theoretical limit there might be a human limit we don't know okay but there's no reason why you know you, you could only be 30 minutes or an hour or two hours you don't you could have any length of time okay um <laughs> so do you have any notion on if a group of people went into that state and like explored together whether the novelty of that space would start to wear off and maybe there could be some kind of a switch well, yes, that's my, my prediction is that it would stabilize, first of all. And there's some evidence, I think, from these early studies that it would stabilize the state. The brain would learn to construct a stable model of the state. And then over time, if you were in there for days, uh, your brain would actually start to remodel itself. It wouldn't just be temporarily restructuring its model. It would start to reshape its neural connections. And then your brain would become better at building that world than building the normal waking world, which would mm. be very weird. When you come back, your brain would have to relearn how to construct the environment. Um, so that would be kind of weird. It's a bit like if you take glasses that switch the world around. You can get specs, spectacles that flip the world around. After a few days, your brain flips the image again. Um, then when you take the glasses off, your world is upside down for a few days. So it's kind of horrible. Um, but you can imagine that on a, on a much more detailed level in the brain where it's actually that, constructing this new world. Is that just an abstract story or has someone experimented? No, 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 no. That's, yeah. People have done that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You can, yeah. There's published papers on that. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so you think, well, so then you'd become an elf. Is that what would happen? Yes. You'd become effectively. Yeah. You'd become part of the DMT yeah. space and you could because, be in there. You could be in a pod for, you know, being fed and, dealing with your waste products and um, all of your bodily functions could be maintained, but you would be within this kind of pod in the DMT space for, you know, years at a time, maybe that's a possibility. Yeah. But we're not that's there. Kind of, and that's kind of like the matrix concept, isn't yeah. it? It's just like, that's it. but not on a screen. You're actually, feeling you're it. actually in there. Okay. I need to disappear. I'm afraid. Okay. <laughs> interesting, <laughs> interesting place to end. Um, <laughs> people, go, yes. reality switch technologies, um, reality switch it. technologies. Yes. And yeah. last thing, this is a, this is essentially a novel, um, this is a novel model of how the brain constructs reality. Like you took a bunch of different ideas and kind of mm. made it into a digestible. Yes. Yes. Framework. I can't claim everything. It's not hundred percent novel. Yeah. I mean, there are, I, I, I it's, it's, it's you know everyone constructs their own models for how things work and it's my unified way of thinking about it so it's a it's a it's a unique perspective i would say yes but of course it draws upon decades of research by many other people yeah well awesome thank you so much andrew greatly appreciate it